0: Dr. Mara Dickler is part of the Breast Cancer Medical Oncology Team at Memorial Sloan-Kettering, headed by Dr. Cliff Huttis and Dr. Larry Norton, that developed the so-called dose-dense approach to adjuvant chemotherapy that is now the most common strategy used for high-risk patients. I met with Dr. Dickler to obtain an update on this and other interesting research projects, but she began our conversation by commenting on the common clinical scenarios in which she interfaces with her surgical colleagues.
1: I get a lot of referrals from my surgeons for DCIS, actually. I think the discussion as to whether patients should consider tamoxifen for diagnosis of DCIS, which is typically in the realm of surgeons and something that the surgeons can and will often discuss with their patients. But sometimes some of my colleagues also want the patients to hear the medical oncology side of it.
0: And I know, you know, talking to Pat Borgen and a number of people up there, they've told me that in your area, at least. Not too many people want tamoxifen. There's a lot of the patients have hesitancy. Is that your experience?
1: Right. I think the acceptance of tamoxifen for prevention in particular and also for DCIS is quite low. But I think a lot of it has to do with how the information is presented to patients. By the time they come to me, it's really a very select group of patients that are often very interested in the possibility and want to hear a little bit more of a further discussion of the risks and benefits and whether tamoxifen, if it is right for them. So I'd say more of the patients that I see are interested in taking it, but I'm sure that's a selection for people who actually come to a medical oncologist with the diagnosis of DCIS.
0: That's interesting. Can you talk a little bit about how you present to the patients the risks and benefits of tamoxifen in this situation, and how that varies in your own mind based on the type of DCIS or amount of DCIS?
1: Right. Well, I always go into the room with B24, the NSABP study, because I think that there's a number of tables in that paper that are really very informative for these patients. I think it clearly lays out what the risk of an event is at five years, the cumulative incidence of a breast cancer event. And I clearly tell these women tamoxifen in this setting doesn't improve survival. It will only help to reduce the risk of a breast cancer event, an ipsilateral event, and a chondrolateral event. And I break it down that two-thirds of the events that the women experienced were in the ipsilateral breast. So for women who've had a mastectomy after DCIS, there's really even less of a push because their only benefit is prevention, essentially, or reduction in the contralateral breast. So we really look at the tables and look at the number of events and the cumulative incidence of an event at five years. And you can see that for women who took placebo in B24, the incidence at five years was about 13% and it was reduced to about 7 or 8% with the use of tamoxifen and the hazard ratio is 0.63 or a 37% reduction in the risk of an event But I think what's interesting to see when I talk to these women is how they respond to the number of events and the five-year incidents, and what does it mean to go from 13% to 8%. For some women, that's a very meaningful benefit, and they're willing to accept the potential side effects of blood clots, the low risk of uterine cancer, and hot flashes for that benefit. And other women say to me, oh, this is easy. This isn't worth it for me. So I find the decision to take tamoxifen for DCIS is a very personal one, and that each woman weighs the risks and benefits very differently. You know, And often I say you have to decide, are you more afraid of the event or the cancer, or are you more afraid of the side effects? And so I don't really push women to take tamoxifen. And I would say for the folks that come to me, probably three-quarters of women accept it. But again, I think I'm seeing a select population that have already discussed it with their surgeon and are seeking more information.
0: It's interesting. And of course, we're talking about ER positive, DCIS. Well, what about the issue of aromatase inhibitors? There have been trials that we're waiting on results from that are compared AIs to Tamoxifen and postmenopausal women, are there any situations where you would consider that for DCIS outside of a study?
1: I think that if there's an absolute contraindication to tamoxifen, someone could consider an aromatase inhibitor. Obviously, the adjuvant study suggests that aromatase inhibitors are more effective than tamoxifen for reducing a, at least a contralateral breast cancer. I'm always impressed by the reduction in the risk of contralateral events in almost all of the adjuvant studies that have compared AIs to tamoxifen. Even the IES study shows that after sequencing from tamoxifen to XMS stain, you have a reduction in contralateral events. And many of those events really, in part, drive the actual benefit of the AI, in that there's a reduction with contralateral events almost as much sometimes as some of the other endpoints. So yeah, I have to look specifically at each trial and look at the numbers, but I think AIs are very effective. They're being looked at for chemo prevention, they're being looked at in DCIS. And, you know, since there is no data yet for an AI in DCIS, I do discuss tamoxifen. I also will mention raloxifene, but I always talk about the AIs because many of these women have heard about them, have read about them, and are even sometimes coming to ask whether they can substitute an AI for tamoxifen.
0: You know, I always thought that, like, some of the hesitation that patients have, particularly well-informed patients about tamoxifen, might be kind of blown out of proportion. I don't know, it's something about endometrial cancer that's really scary for patients. If the AIs turn out to kind of have the story we think they're going to have compared to tamoxifen in postmenopausal patients with DCIS, with the, you know, expected risks and comparative risk and benefits, how do you think that's going to sit with women with DCIS?
1: Well, I think it may be better accepted, although a proportion of women get arthralgias that really are intolerable. And then I think many women get arthralgias that they can tolerate but do impact the quality of their life. They're just achier, you know, harder to get going in the morning. So I think that for a prevention drug or for a drug for DCIS, will be interesting to see continued use of an AI in that setting. I think some of the side effects that women with invasive cancer accept because they're concerned about a distant recurrence and an improvement of disease-free survival, those risks aren't really there for women with DCIS. So it would be interesting to see if those women stick with the AIs.
0: What was your take on the STAR trial on the prevention setting, you know, looking at raloxifene versus tamoxifen and would you use raloxifene and DCIS at this point?
1: Yes, I would, in that I know that it wasn't as effective in reducing the incidence of DCIS in the P2 trial. But it's a puzzling finding to me, and the fact is it was equally efficacious at reducing the risk of invasive events. And so I don't really understand that or the biology of why that would be. I always thought that probably most invasive cancers start as in situ cancers, and ultimately it's the invasive cancer that impacts survival. So I don't think that that finding would preclude my use of raloxifene in that setting. And raloxifene also may be safer, you know, less risk of endometrial cancer. And it's also been shown to reduce the risk of vertebral fractures in women with osteoporosis. So I think raloxifene is definitely an alternative out there that could be considered.
0: The STAR trial was restricted to postmenopausal patients, I guess, because they didn't have data. I mean, it wasn't inherently that it wouldn't have worked. Would you use raloxifene as prevention in a premenopausal patient?
1: No, I wouldn't right now, since there's no data in that population of patients. And you're right, it's a SERM, and we can use tamoxifen in that population, but I wouldn't extrapolate and use raloxifene.
0: Where are we right now in terms of endocrine therapy in the adjuvant setting? And let's start with the postmenopausal patients. And you know, we had now; it's been since 2001 that we've been seeing these trials come out with aromatase therapy, then a bunch of questions that have come up, particularly the issue of should you give two years of Tamoxifen first or just start right out with an AI? Where are you in that perspective and where do you think most oncologists are?
1: Well, I tend to use an AI up front in my postmenopausal patients. There are a select group of patients where I'll consider tamoxifen first. Older women with low-risk disease who have osteoporosis, you know, where I feel that tamoxifen will be adequate and I can also improve their bone density, I do consider tamoxifen and then we'll watch their bone density going forward and may offer them the sequencing strategy. But in general, I think that the aromatase inhibitors are a little bit better. I believe that you can prevent some of the earlier events with the AIs, although the numbers are small, I think there's a difference early on that you see in the ATAC trial. And I like to use my best drug going forward. I'm still very interested in a sequencing strategy and anxiously await the results of big 198 to see if one of the crossover arms, if letrozole to tamoxifen may be better than letrozole alone for five years. So it'll be very interesting to see the results of that. But until I know otherwise, I do start with an AI up front. I think many people at my institution also have the same strategy. I know there have been some studies that have modeled out using tamoxifen first, and those modeling studies have suggested that at five years you're really at the same place, or potentially even better, and that you actually catch up with the few people that you lose early on. But, you know, I'm a believer in prospective randomized trials, and I feel that the data is clear in a number of studies that using AIs up front are better.
0: You mentioned the arthralgias with the AIs, and the other major potential downside that's been reported relates to bone, although I think in virtually all the AI trials, there wasn't anything done in terms of bone mineral density monitoring or bisphosphonates, which is now commonly done in practice. Right now, using monitoring and bisphosphonates, how much of a risk of bone do you think there is with the eyes?
1: Well, I think that osteopenia and porosis is a problem as women age in, in general. You know, I think that there's a lot of morbidity as people get older with fractures, particularly of the hip. So I think it depends on the age of the patient. And to be honest, I don't think we really know going forward. I don't think we have long-term follow-up on our 50- and 60-year-old patients as they get to be 70 and 80 So I think it's a little bit of an unknown, and I am concerned uh, about the future going forward. I think that we are always learning about that. So I do carefully watch the bone density. I do check now for vitamin D deficiency, and I replete vitamin D as needed. I encourage women to do weight-bearing exercise. And then I do add bisphosphonates when the bone density starts to drop, or really as the T-score starts to approach minus 2, I add bisphosphonates.
0: Another issue that there's a lot of questions about is the duration of using AIs in the adjuvant setting. I guess right now the trials have gone up to five years. Now we have trials that are looking beyond five years. Right now in a non-protocol setting, how do you approach the issue of when to stop an AI?
1: Well, I look at the woman's age, her comorbid medical problems, and her risk of a breast cancer recurrence. I think it's easiest to make these decisions for node-positive patients where we've seen a survival benefit for extended adjuvant therapy with letrozole so I think that those are the women that are most likely to gain benefit. And after five years of an AI, I think I would talk to the patient. I'm hoping that we get more data going forward as my patients approach that five-year point. But I think with close monitoring of their bone density, and I don't see much of a downside in that I'm not concerned that an AI may be detrimental the way we think tamoxifen might be detrimental after more than five years. I don't see that as a problem in breast cancer for an AI, just the side effects. So I think talking to the patient and weighing the risks and benefits is important. Where I struggle is to know negative patient. The woman whose risk of a recurrence is really lower, she's got other comorbid problems, I find that a much harder decision. And, you know, and I talk to each woman, but I wouldn't select patients offer more than five years of an AI if I thought that they might benefit.
0: That whole concept of the long-term endocrine management of breast cancer has really changed dramatically in the last few years. I guess there's been a lot more sensitivity to the threat of late recurrence after year five. Can you talk about kind of how you've seen that play out as oncologists look at these data?
1: Well, I think it was really fascinating data to see, even from the overview analysis, how many recurrences happen after year five. I don't think we really understood that. And we all have patients who have relapsed 10 and even 20 years out. But to see that just as many women relapse after five years as they do in the first five years makes us realize it truly is a chronic disease and something that we can modify. You know, MA17 not only showed us that women are recurring during that period, but that we can prevent them. And I think that that was really a practice-changing study, really not just for letrozole in that setting, but that we can impact the natural history of this disease year five to 10, and maybe more. And patients are being re-randomized for 10 versus 15 years, so it will be interesting. I mean, we may be looking at 15 years of endocrine therapy, and if we can improve survival, it's very
0: important. And most recently, the NSABP, just at the last San Antonio meeting, reported XMS amesting And that was really a shock to me because that trial... They had to close it because the other study reported and all these people crossed over. And Terry Mamounis presented that. And I was expecting him to say, and therefore the trial was negative And boom, he shows these data. It worked in spite of all that.
1: Absolutely. I mean, that was the interesting thing that even though I think it was 45% of women crossed over from placebo to XMS stain, that there was still a benefit, a reduction in the hazard ratio that trended toward statistical significance. I think it shows the power of the AI and that estrogen suppression is really a very useful therapy. I think MA17 showed in a nice presentation that even after being on placebo for some time and switching over to letrozole, so being off therapy after five years of tamoxifen, they benefited. So it seems like whenever you introduce these drugs, you can derive benefit. And that's probably the same. It seems like whenever you introduce an AI, it's potentially beneficial. So for the high-risk patient who had positive lymph nodes, if a surgeon is seeing them several years out and they never got any hormonal therapy or they never got an aromatase inhibitor, I think that surgeons should consider talking to the patient about hormonal therapy or sending them to a medical oncologist for that discussion. The ER negatives are the ones who benefit the most from our chemotherapy. It's sort of the flip side. The ER positives get tremendous benefit from hormonal therapy, and it seems like even initiating this treatment years out can even give them some benefit. The flip side is that the ER negatives are really much more likely to relapse in the first five years, and if you can get them to year five, they're more likely to do better, and they may not have to look over their shoulder as much as the ER ER-positive patients.
0: What about in the premenopausal patients? There are trials out there looking at ovarian suppression, plus tamoxifen, or ovarian suppression, plus an AI. Right now in a non-protocol setting, how do you approach hormonal therapy in the premenopausal patient?
1: Well, so the SOFT trial is one of those studies that's opened at Sloan Kettering, and I'm the PI at that institution for it, so I try so hard to get all my patients on SOFT, and I'll go back to the non-protocol setting, but I think right now that's one of the most important protocols for adjuvant therapy in general.
0: And I've heard it's not accruing that well.
1: No, it's a tough protocol to discuss because many patients and physicians have a bias as to whether they think ovarian suppression is beneficial, and also, ovarian suppression definitely has side effects and the patient or the physician chooses the therapy it's a flip of a coin, it's a computer decision. Two-thirds of the women do get ovarian suppression, one-third don't. But there are other trials looking at ovarian suppression. There's the text trials for the people who believe ovarian suppression is effective, that's in both arms, ovarian suppression and then the randomization is to tamoxifen versus an aromatase inhibitor and those trials are very important. Outside of a clinical trial, you know, for women who are very high risk, have many positive lymph nodes who don't want to be randomized, you know, we discuss the risks and benefits. We talk about the effects of ovarian suppression on weight, hot flashes, sexual function, potential impact it may have on cardiovascular health and bone health. For women who have multiple positive lymph nodes, they're often willing to accept the side effects of ovarian suppression for that possible benefit, although they all know the soft trial is ongoing, and it wouldn't be ongoing if we knew the answer. I mean, I think it's important to know whether we're improving survival, because I think we are impacting quality of life with that treatment.
0: Let's talk about chemotherapy in a patient who has an ER ER-positive tumor. As you mentioned, there's a lot of controversy about how much chemo really helps. And one thing that's come along has been the Oncotype DX assay, which is used in patients with no negative ER ER-positive tumors. Can you kind of talk a little bit about the background of that and sort of how you incorporate it into your practice?
1: Yeah. So the Oncotype DX test, which is performed by Genomic Health, extracts RNA from the tumors. And it's paraffin-embedded tumor. So it's wonderful in that it's not fresh frozen. It's very versatile. Patients can come to us and we can send their slides to Genomic Health for the analysis. And I think the analysis generates a recurrence score that helps us stratify women who are in the low, intermediate, or high-risk groups. And what they did to validate this assay was to look at women who had participated in an SABP trial to see how they did with various treatments, hormonal therapy with or without chemotherapy, and what they clearly showed was women who were in the low-risk group really did not derive much benefit from chemotherapy. It's a little less clear for the intermediate-risk group, and it's always hard when you get an intermediate-risk recurrence score and how to advise patients. But for women in the high-risk group, it's obvious that chemotherapy does add, and I think I think in some ways the oncotype D-hex is hopefully the future for how we will make decisions going forward for women with breast cancer. And a very important clinical trial is getting underway called Taylor Rx. Joe Sperano is the principal investigator, and that study is using Oncotype DX. Before any treatment decisions are made, women enroll and have the test. And for women who get a result that places them in the low risk category, they'll be offered hormonal therapy alone. The intermediate risk group, hormonal therapy versus is chemohormonal therapy. And for the high risk group, they'll get chemotherapy followed by hormonal therapy. And I think that will be prospective validation of the use of the Oncotype DX. But I think we're finally moving out of sort of the dark ages of looking at pathology reports and determining treatment based on tumor size and markers on the surface of the cell. And although that's all very important, I think, you know, molecular profiling is really a very powerful tool and hopefully how we'll make decisions going
0: forward. If the- patient has an ER positive, no negative tumor, and you're going to get an oncotype, do you also take into consideration the size of the tumor or maybe histopathologic features? I mean, for example, the patient has a three centimeter tumor. Are you still willing to sort of depend on an oncotype?
1: It depends on the age of the patient, and I see in general a young group of patients at Sloan-Kettering. So I think that for a 3-centimeter tumor, I'm more likely to offer chemotherapy even when they're node negative. But we see so many women who have tumors in the 1- to 2-centimeter range where we used to traditionally give lots of chemotherapy and then hormonal therapy. And now I feel you know we're learning more about whether those women are the ones who are going to benefit from the chemotherapy or not.
0: Do you generally order a narcotype on all your patients with ER positive, no negative tumors, or are you more selective in terms of situations where patients are kind of on the fence or you're on the fence?
1: Yeah, I think I'm selective, you know, I I probably order oncotype DX for the seven millimeter up till probably two centimeter tumors and then above two centimeters it depends. Depends on the age of the patient and other things that are comorbid medical problems. But I think for the larger tumors I tend not to order it.
0: We're going to talk about adjuvant trastuzumab, but what about the ACA type in patients whose tumors is ER positive, but also HER2 positive?
1: I tend not to get it in those patients because I think HER2 plays a large role in the calculation of the recurrence score. And I think in general, HER2 positive patients typically are in the high risk group. And I also think that chemotherapy is more important in the HER2 positive patients. There's no data for trastuzumab without chemotherapy. The trastuzumab may be the most important piece of therapy for HER2 positive patients and in general I'm always giving that with chemotherapy. So I tend not to do an oncotype in my HER2 positive node negative patients.
0: Let's talk about adjuvant trastuzumab receptin. It's certainly been one of the most exciting things that's happened in terms of adjuvant systemic therapy and a lot is happening there. Can you kind of track out what happened and what's been going on right now in that regard?
1: Yeah, I agree with you that the use of trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting has been the greatest advance that we've had in the treatment of women with breast cancer. Historically, HER2-positive disease has carried with it a poor prognosis. And I think now it's a little less clear how women who get trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting will do. I mean, when Dennis Slayman presented results showing that these women had a much higher risk of recurrence, that was before we had a targeted therapy that could effectively treat these women. And I think it's very exciting to know that we may be altering the natural history of this disease. I think more studies are needed for the use of trastuzumab in the subcentimeter population of patients. And also, I'd love to see a study with trastuzumab without chemotherapy because the Herceptin may be the most important part of that treatment, but we don't really know that just yet.
0: Can you kind of provide an overview of what these trials have looked at and roughly what they've seen?
1: Sure. So there were studies that took place in North America. There was the NSABP trial and the intergroup study that was presented by Romand. Those two studies were combined, and that looked at an anthracycline and taxane-based regimen. The NCCTG trial, the intergroup study, did AC followed by Taxol, and that Taxol was weekly paclitaxel. The NSABP study did it a little bit differently. They did just Q3-week paclitaxel, but they merged these studies and combine the results. And the arms that contained Herceptin very clearly showed a tremendous reduction in the risk of recurrence and an improvement in overall survival. The Europeans designed a very different study, which is, I think, a great addition to our treatment because it gives us some versatility. The Europeans allowed physicians to give any type of chemotherapy, and then women were randomized after completing their surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation to Herceptin versus no Herceptin. So it was really a sequencing of the targeted agent after chemotherapy, and they also showed a very powerful reduction in the risk of recurrence and an improvement in survival. And what's interesting is the Europeans had less cardiac toxicity. And that is tricky to interpret in that patients who had had probably a drop in their ejection fraction during chemotherapy were probably not eligible to get Herceptin and that they were screened prior to going on the study. So that group was probably a group of of patients who are less likely to develop heart failure going forward. But still, it's an interesting alternative for patients, and you can give the chemotherapy and then follow it with Herceptin. Whether Herceptin is better in combination with chemotherapy or whether the sequencing strategy is as effective is a question that's still not yet answered by the intergroup trial.
0: Can you kind of put in perspective what the risk is of cardiac damage with Herceptin?
1: The peak seems to occur about one and a half years after the start of Herceptin, and I'd say that risk in combination with anthracycline and taxane-based chemotherapy is about 4%.
0: And I guess now there are regimen. there's one regimen in particular that's been reported in these trials, the TCH regimen that has docetaxel or taxotere carboplatin and Herceptin that seems to have a lot less cardiac toxicity and maybe is effective. Is that your take?
1: Yeah, well, Dennis Lehman updated the results of the BCIRG study, 006, and when he initially presented those results, both Herceptin-containing arms, whether it was AC taxateer versus TCH were both better than the control arm, which was AC taxotere alone, showing again the power of targeted therapy in this disease and the benefits of Herceptin. And you know, that was
0: about roughly a 50% reduction in recurrence, which is kind of what we've seen in all these studies, about a 50% reduction.
1: Right. And although there was no statistically significant difference between the two Herceptin-containing arms, there was a suggestion that the ACTH may have performed a little bit better than TCH. And that seems to have caught up to the, uh, the TCH arm, seem to be as good as the ACTH arm on the second analysis. But there's other data that still suggests that anthracyclines are important for HER2 positive disease. And although the results for the BCIRG study are very encouraging, I don't think we know for sure if we can get rid of the anthracyclines or whether there's a subgroup of patients that need anthracycline based. Therapy. So, in general, for somebody who's otherwise healthy and has no contraindications to anthracycline-based treatment, I still recommend an ACT regimen in combination with Herceptin.
0: Now, you mentioned the controversy about node-negative HER2-positive tumors, particularly I guess between you know up to one centimeter. I'm seeing a lot of these people who are getting treated with trastuzumab based on the thinking that the prognosis is much worse in this subset than the overall. You know, less than one centimeter subset. Is that your take?
1: Yeah, I mean, I agonize about all of those cases, and you have to really individualize. And I, again, I see a young population. So when you see a 40 year old with an 8 millimeter HER2 positive tumor, and you hope she lives to 80, you know, I believe at this time her biggest risk to her survival is her breast cancer. It's different if the patient is 75 or 80, you know, and has comorbid problems. But I think it's something that we don't completely know, and there are side effects to our treatment. And I think that it would be nice if there was a trial designed in that subset of meter group of patients. It would need to be a very large trial to show a benefit.
0: Now, a lot of oncologists are using so-called dose-dense adjuvant chemotherapy, which was really developed at your place, Memorial giving the chemotherapy every two weeks with growth factors. And I know you all have done a study looking at dose-dense chemotherapy plus trastuzumab. What have you seen, and is that something you're using right now in a non-protocol setting?
1: Yeah, so Chow Deng was the principal investigator of that trial, and 70 women were treated on a phase two feasibility study. And of those 70 patients, only one person developed congestive heart failure with 19 months now of median follow up. And that study was powered based on cardiac events, and it would have been unacceptable if there were three or more cardiac events defined as congestive heart failure, and that would have given given you roughly the 4% rate of cardiac events that are seen in the large trastuzumab studies that we've been talking about. So with only one event of congestive heart failure in 70 patients, we are using dose-dense ACTH now as our standard regimen at Sloan Kettering.
0: How do you find patients tolerating dose-dense therapy in general, whether it's with trastuzumab or not? They're getting it at more frequent intervals. Does it take more time to recover? Do they feel worse? Do they feel better? How do they go through it?
1: I think it's actually very interesting with the growth factor and with the accelerated recovery of the white blood cell count. I think in general it's very well tolerated. I think that patients had more side effects when they had prolonged myelosuppression. I think that they had more mucositis. I think that they had a higher risk risk of neutropenic fever and hospitalization. We really rarely see that now. And I think in general, people tolerate it very well. It used to be they said they'd had, you know, two bad weeks and one good week. Now they say, I have one bad week, one good week. So it seems to be that much of the side effects are tied to myelosuppression. And when you accelerate recovery, the side effects are not too bad.
0: When you use Dostad's chemo with the trastuzumab, is it with a thought in mind that, Hopefully it's going to be more effective or better tolerated or both.
1: Well, dose-dense chemotherapy, every Q2-week chemotherapy, has been shown to be better than every three-week treatment. And so I hope that it would be better than if I had done it every three weeks. I hope to get the benefits not only of trastuzumab, but also of the dose-dense regimen.
0: Can you talk a little bit about HER2 testing and where we are right now? It's obviously more critical than ever that the patient have this test done. You're looking at being able to use an intervention 50%, and that's above and beyond hormone therapy and chemotherapy, so it's an enormous impact. Where are we in terms of quality control for HER2 testing?
1: I think that there's obviously there's variability in testing, and you're right, it's very important. And there's also variability with estrogen and progesterone receptor testing. So I think that it's important where the test is done, when in doubt, you know, have it repeated. But I think you can't repeat everybody's test all the time, so you need to work with a lab that you trust. And I think if there's something that doesn't fit right, then to have it repeated or done somewhere else.
0: Now, there are two ways to test her, too the IHC or FISH. You know, sort of how are those two kind of utilized?
1: Well, we use both at Sloan-Kettering. We do immunohistochemistry, and then if you're 2-plus or 3-plus positive, then we go ahead and do FISH as well. And a quarter of patients who are 2-plus by IHC are FISH-amplified. We no longer do FISH testing routinely on the patients who have HER2 staining intensity of 0 or 1-plus.
0: What about neoadjuvant therapy of patients with HER2-positive tumors?
1: I add Herceptin now when I give the neoadjuvant therapy. So we add Herceptin after the anthracycline-based treatment has completed. We tend to give all the chemotherapy up front, so it would be AC, paclitaxel, or TCH in certain patients, surgery, and then the Herceptin continues to complete one year of therapy.
0: Now, there's a new agent that's coming out, not quite available yet, but probably will be available, an oral agent used for HER2-positive tumors. Lapatinib. Can you talk about what that is and what we know about it?
1: Yeah, so lepatinib is an oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor that targets not just HER2, but also HER1 or EGFR. And studies have shown in the metastatic setting that in combination with capecitabine, that that combination is effective and has activity in patients who have failed trastuzumab-based chemotherapy. So it's a very exciting agent. There's now more that will be available to treat HER2-positive. Positive patients, especially the ones who have developed resistance to Herceptin. And Lapatinib will be looked at in clinical trials in the adjuvant setting.
0: I guess the other thing that's being talked about in the next stage of trials or the adjuvant trials for patients with HER2 positive tumors is the addition of Bevacizumab or Avastin. What are your thoughts about that?
1: Well, bevacizumab, when added to weekly paclitaxel, improved response rates and progression-free survival in the first-line setting for metastatic disease. That was E2100 reported by Kathy Miller, and I think bevacizumab is another very exciting advance in the treatment not only of breast cancer but other solid tumors. I think that anti-angiogenic therapy may be most effective in the setting of minimal residual disease. And so there are right now feasibility studies that are ongoing looking at bevacizumab in the adjuvant setting. ECOG has done an adjuvant trial looking at I think dose-dense ACT with a cohort of patients receiving bevacizumab at the start of the AC and a second cohort getting bevacizumab at the start of the taxane. And at Sloan Kettering, we are looking at dose-dense AC followed by abraxane in collaboration with folks at UCSF. And they are all feasibility trials with the primary endpoint being cardiac safety. There's always concern when you're combining a drug with doxorubicin that you may increase the cardiac cardiac toxicity of that drug. And so therefore, these feasibility studies are being done in preparation for a large randomized phase three study, which is being planned in the intergroup setting that will look at an anthracycline and taxane-based regimen in combination with bevacizumab. And that study will randomize 5,000 patients.
0: What about trastuzumab plus bevacizumab in the adjuvant setting?
1: Well, it's a very exciting combination that's still being looked at in the metastatic setting. There were some early concerns possibly of cardiac toxicity, although that's still not necessarily a problem, but there was an early safety signal so that I think before it's looked at in the adjuvant setting, we need to see more data for metastatic disease.